0: Now we'll have uh, Franco. Right. Let's identify the, the lecture. Let me see that, that um, um, we have, between yesterday and this morning, uh, had some very, very powerful um, um, testimony in terms of words and pictures of the devastating effects of AIDS, HIV, and other infectious diseases with the malaria this morning, particularly, and all the devastating impact on society and individuals. But Susan mentioned this morning some of the neglected areas of of impending chronic disease burden in Africa, and I'd like to cover for the next 20 minutes this neglected area and share with you what are the concerns, both in terms of of, uh, healthcare provision, but also policy making. Now I will uh, go through some key principles of epidemiology of cardiovascular disease, but I'll give no credit to the epidemiology of cardiovascular disease. Only I'll choose some items which are relevant to Africa, so uh, forgive me if some of the things will not be uh, fully covered. The first thing I want to um, indicate to you with this graph is two concepts. The first one, uh, and this is what you see on the horizontal axis, you see the levels of blood pressure in populations, and on, on the vertical axis, on the left hand side, you have the risk of developing strokes, and on the right-hand side, the risk of developing coronary heart disease, myocardial infarctions, heart attacks. And the two points I want to make from this slide is, uh, first of all, as you can see, there's a log-linear relationship. The higher is the population blood pressure, the greater is the risk of developing a stroke or a heart attack. Um, The second point is this is log-linear. In other words, if you see the numbers below, you recognize there is no threshold below which blood pressure stops being a risk factor. And if we transfer this between population and the clinical setting, we have these man-made diseases called hypertension, for instance, where people with high blood pressure. But this slide shows that hypertension is a man-made condition. It's not a biological condition. We draw a line roughly around here, 150 systolic, and we decided everyone above that is hypertensive, therefore deserves drug therapy. We dispense tablets, and below which they don't deserve tablets. But in reality, everyone is exposed to risk for any change in the level of blood pressure. The only thing is the health economics of each country and the Western world that decides that it's very cost effective to dispense tablets above that level, but not below that level. Right? So the first point to make is that we can reduce the risk of developing strokes and heart attacks by reducing blood pressure with drugs in the high risk group. But if we were able to reduce blood pressure in normal people without the use of drugs, we would reduce the risk. And that is the definition between high risk approach and population approach. The other point I want to make is that cardiovascular disease is made mainly of strokes heart attacks, and few other vascular conditions. And how common are they? Well, if we put in perspective, these are data of mortality in adults around the world uh, according to leading causes of death. And then I will then make some clarifications. Without going into great detail on all these causes, the first two lines above, the first one is ischemic heart disease, and the second is stroke and both of them account for more than 10 million deaths in the world every single year, and these are data in 1990. Just to put in perspective, this is HIV in 1990, and this is mortality in adults. Projections to 2020 leave the ranking of these conditions as they are, with the major differences of HIV will rank 8th in that sort of ranking. So the major killers in the world are coronary heart disease and stroke. What does it have to do with Africa? Well, if we look at stroke, which is the second line, which is the most important outcome of high blood pressure, specifically, we see that 70% of those deaths happen in developing countries, the WHO calls lower middle income countries, which include Africa. Now, why are these figures sometimes um, put in doubt? Because whilst, obviously, we need to know the underlying cause of death to draw these figures internationally, and there is a risk of some differential bias, what we call Some countries have a better way of assessing the underlying cause of death by death certification, whereas in other places this doesn't happen. Now, Africa is, as a continent, but particularly sub-Saharan Africa, is a place where death certification is not routine. People die, we don't know what they die of. And there have been over the years some uh, methodological approaches to try and approach the uh, understanding of the underlying cause of death not through autopsies or death certification but through what we call verbal autopsies which is a way of investigating through interviews the likely cause of death. However, this is not widespread all across Africa so the majority of African countries do not have cause-specific registers for mortality yearly. Until recently where a study in Tanzania was published using verbal autopsies that reveal some very interesting uh, relationships. Here we have stroke mortalities in urban and rural Tanzania, and the last by age groups and by gender. And what we have the last, the fourth column of each of those Areas are the mortality from stroke in England and Wales as a comparison. Now we take obviously the mortality in England and Wales in Northern Europe is one of the high mortality rates, uh, and US is not different. And when we put in perspective, and I draw this line for the for Dar es Salaam, so the urban areas, and this is the UK or England and Wales, in fact you can see that at any age, in both genders, the stroke mortality rate assessed by verbal autopsies, which have been validated against death certification, lie always higher in absolute terms than the stroke mortality rates we find in England and Wales. And this is the first study with some uh, strong measures of mortality or ascertainment of death, indicating that stroke rates are high in Africa, and sometimes even higher, than in Western worlds, where we are assumed to be leading the world in this. Now, a slide I'm not showing, but believe me, tells us from the Global Burden of Disease work in WHO that when we look at the attributable risk factors for specific mortality, in other words, what are the most important underlying risk factors explaining mortality rates from different conditions and we come to stroke and cardiovascular disease? High blood pressure is, by far, the stronger attributable risk for stroke and coronary heart disease. In other words, the majority of that outcome is due to high blood pressure. And that's true in developing countries and as well as in low and middle income countries. Now, how big is the problem in terms of numbers? We have looked at relative risks before, so the fold increase in risk. Now I'll give you some estimates of number. At the moment, and these are estimates in 2000, more than a quarter of the world adult population nearly 1 billion, of which a third is in developing countries, had hypertension, in other words, had blood pressure above that threshold of risk for therapy. And this proportion is definitely going to increase by 29%, which is 1.6 billion by 2025. So really it's not a minor problem globally. And when we talk about developing countries, I think we know that Africa plays a very big role in contributing to the burden of this particular risk factor which is high blood pressure or else blood pressure levels. Now this is a, a map I drew around 2002 I think, but maybe out of date, we've got more studies now. But that gives you an idea of the population studies we have estimating prevalence of hypertension. Prevalence hypertension is the proportion of people with a blood pressure above that magic number. And you can see that in some areas of sub-Saharan Africa these can approach very high levels, equally or even higher than the rates we have in the United States and in Western Europe. That's why we we became interested in the idea of uh, what role is it playing hypertension in sub-Saharan Africa and is there any way we can anticipate the definitely an uh, explosion of chronic disease that will happen in sub-Saharan Africa, if you believe what Kandala said yesterday of the epidemiological transition, it will happen. And we know that in developing countries, with the speed of communication, with the speed of exposure in globalization to environmental risk factors being dietary and, and lifestyle related, that the speed of transition, will be much, much faster than we experience in Europe between the 19th and 20th century. And it will approach more the Japanese model that Kandala was referring to. So it is likely that in 20, 30 years, we will have an explosion of chronic disease risk factors and conditions related to those risk factors. So we were interested in the late 90s in trying to understand how we can understand the problem and tackle it. So we we knew hypertension was common in sub-Saharan Africa. But, and the incidence was felt to be rising, although we have no clear uh, indications as yet. But what we know in many, in many of these countries, uh, there are very few secondary care facilities for the detection and management of hypertension the complications. So we give for granted that now we have screenings for hypertension. We go to our GP, we measure blood pressure. And if we do have high blood pressure, we are targeted for lifestyle management. Or we are given tablets. That's not a given in West Africa, no one knows what hypertension is, no one knows what their number is, and no one knows what to do to lower blood pressure. If, if they knew, they probably, in many systems, they wouldn't afford to buy tablets because they're not provided free by governments, as I'll show you in our setting. So the contribution to overall mortality we felt would be high, and the Tanzanian studies then showed that that is the case. So we decided in the first instance to try and find out in a locality that we, were, uh, we had some links with to assess the importance of vascular disease in the first place uh, with the view of planning a, a population study. And the area uh, I will uh, discuss the study is in the Ashanti region of Ghana. So it's a very specific area, and there are differences from the rest of Ghana, the rest of the African countries, the rest of Africa as a whole and we will discuss the pros and cons of of, uh, working in that area. But the first thing we did very briefly, we went to the General Hospital in the late 90s and looked at the number of admissions and deaths over a certain period of time and tried to assess how many of those admissions in general medical wards and how many deaths, as, as far as we could tell from the records, could have been due to vascular disease. And obviously, if I tell you what's the, the commonest cause of admission that hospital was, was snake bite. So we were moving in a totally different uh, understanding within the local setting what we we're going to look for. And to cut the story short, out of the total admissions over two six month periods, uh, about 30% of all admissions to a general medical ward, and on the right hand side, 30% of all deaths uh, fr- from those admissions could have been attributed to either hypertension, heart failure, or stroke. Notice there is no myocardial infarction at all. If you wanted to train as an invasive cardiologist, you wouldn't go to Africa. There are no heart attacks in rural and semi-urban Africa. So we decided to um, start an application for funding to test the possibility of reducing blood pressure in that community with the view that that is a burden for vascular disease uh, through population approach, health promotion. And we wanted to target one key determinant of high blood pressure, which is high salt intake. Salt is a major determinant of high blood pressure in communities and populations and individuals. And we know that if we reduce blood pr- uh, salt intake in the diet, we do reduce blood pressure, both in people with high blood pressure and also in people with normal blood pressure. Now, if you did in the population, we would just reduce blood pressure a little in everyone, that would convey huge benefits to the population outcomes. So, why salt intake in Africa? There's one thing I want to go to. We have some historians here, and there's been, uh, in the 70s, um, there's been a story of, a hypothesis was created, so-called the slavery hypothesis. It was trying to Justify the observations that people of the African continent, of African origin, particularly uh, the evidence was starting in the States, are more likely to get high blood pressure, more likely to develop strokes, and that was um, felt to be due partly to a Darwinian genetic selection, uh, bringing them to be very sensitive to salt intake and therefore to the rising blood pressure with this exposure to salt. And the slavery hypothesis, which is highlighted in these very early carvings in seventeen something, indicates that the idea underlying is that the slavery hypothesis selected through the voyage those the fittest to, to survive the voyage during the slave trade. And that was due to the ability for them to retain salt during the hot climates of the voyage, the diarrhoea and the infections. And those who would survive had a greater ability to retain sodium to survive. And those who were losing sodium were dying. Now, once you're exposed to a wealth of of salt uh, intake, you don't need that anymore. That was turning against you. That is the slavery hypothesis justifying salt sensitivity in hypertension. Now, obviously, that is hypothesis not credited very much. There are many, many holes. But that brings to the idea that people African origin are far more sensitive to salt in terms of blood pressure response. So we decided to. Try to reduce the population salt intake, knowing that lower salt reduces blood pressure. African-origin people are more sensitive to salt, it made sense to do so. So the Comasi program was funded by the Wellcome Trust, which was more comprehensive than just salt. But I'll show you a few, few things. The, the, the study on the process, the prevalence of hypertension in, that, in, the, in the community, the detection, management, and control, The sources of dietary salt, is very important to then design which program, how you're going about reducing salt intake of people, what are the average levels of salt intake, great surprises there, and just very briefly to mention the the trial that we did to reduce the salt intake. Obviously the program was bigger than that. I haven't got time to go through that. What did we do? We had to do everything from scratch. This was a population-based approach. So we wanted to look at rural areas as well as semi-urban areas. Now, Kumasi is the second largest city in Ghana, for those of not from Ghana, about 2 million people. And we decided to select 12 villages by power calculations, so of which six would be rural and six would be semi-urban. And since we wanted also to run a cluster randomized clinical trial as a part of the program, we decided to select um, for each rural a matched semi-urban village. Now, the criteria for rurality were mainly that a rural village should be more than 25 kilometers radius distant from Kumasi, which is the capital of Ashanti, uh, should have no running water, no electricity. So that is the sort of rurality we are talking. And for the semi-urban, should be within the 25 kilometers radius from Kumasi. These are the, the villages. The population varied in villages. Obviously, semi-urban villages were slightly larger but all under 2,000 inhabitants, and the rural villages were slightly smaller. The total target population we were, we were identifying was about 15,000 inhabitants. But what do we do in this sort of situation? We wanted to run a prevalence study selecting some representative samples of the population, and we wanted to do a trial, randomizing some participants representative of the population. Where, where do we get the population? There's no census there. So, the first thing we had to do, and those are the practicalities of doing the field work in an area, to run out of household census and enumeration of all houses. So, basically, we went with the help of the land registry uh, helpers in, in, in Kumasi. We drew 12 maps of the 12 villages twice, and we, parallel with two, basically, we did the census of all. An enumeration of all the inhabitants of the houses in each village, adding 15,000, right? Uh, Then we excluded all the children because we were interested in adults, 40 and above. This is a chronic disease. And then we censored every one of them and we randomly drew some participants to invite for screening. And we had to enumerate, as you see on the doors, those are our numbers, not 25 is that house on the map, and we knew how many adults were there, who was there, and so forth. Now, somebody talked about ethical approval yesterday, and I was a bit smiling when I heard the problems. Obviously, we had ethical approval from uh, uh, the the University of London, the local uh, British system. Of course, we had to have the uh, ethical approval of the University of Kumasi through the Confernoche Teaching Hospital, but we went through a third layer Sam. Because Ashanti has the chieftaincy organization, it's a tribal society with a very, very strong, they have a king, Yasantahini, they have a very strong organization which helped us a lot, had some very, very positive vibes because they are highly directed and trustworthy. But we needed to have approval by each council of the elders of each individual village. So I'll show you a couple of pictures of two of the twelve meetings I had with the chiefs of each of the villages to obtain their own approval and support. And given that, made life much, much easier, not only ethically, but also for implementation. So, but that was quite a great experience in itself. We had informed written consent, which, as people working in Africa know, is mostly done in those rural villages by thumbprint, because of, and obviously the, the, the consent was, was explained in dual language. 98% of the participants in our villages were uh, Ashanti, from the Ashanti tribe. So they were speaking three. So We did one in, in English, and tui uh, although a small proportion came from the Gar and from the Phantis. Also quite homogeneous within the Ashanti region. Um, then I'll show you some pictures about what we did. This, this, is, this is a health screening. So we had to carry out physical measurements. So we went on site. Uh, to do the physical measurements. So we were reaching the people in the villages. It would have been impossible for them to come. Uh, so we're measuring height, as you can see, weight with some allowances sometimes. Um, and we had to measure blood pressure, which is one of the main objectives of our study. We also had a comprehensive screening with a blood test, uh, all done on site. And also very important, and this is, was a challenge for us, and is a challenge for many working in the area, we needed to assess objectively how much salt they were eating. And the only way to assess the salt intake, the gold standard, is by measuring sodium excretion, which is a component of sodium chloride, in a 24-hour urine collection. The whole day urine you produce. And we did two consecutive ones. And we managed to have more than 1,000 at baseline and a 1,000 at follow-up. And this is an example of how participants were motivated and compliant producing those urines and the nurses to process them on site, bring it to the hospital, aliquots store them, etc. Of course that implied huge logistics. Uh, as you can see some of the uh, we had to you know, apply all the logistics that were supported locally and a great experience with that and also the great support of the local people. And see, was a great enthusiasm all across this program which lasted about three, we were three, three years in, in field and two years of preparation. So for three years we were there, we were part of of those 12 communities on a regular basis. Few data, prevalence hypertension, how common was hypertension in that area? Pretty common, these are on the left hand side you have prevalence hypertension by gender, on the right hand side by semi-urban and rural. First one I'll show you, the average prevalence was about 29%, but there is a very strong age-related rise in blood pressure. You only find that when you have developing societies. In very um, original societies, like for instance, uh, uh, those uh, unattached by development, Yanomano Indians, Solomon Islanders, you find uh, an example that blood pressure does not rise with age. It's not a a physiological phenomenon. It's a usual phenomenon. We find it. But if you took an extreme population in uh, in early... Um, stage of development, blood pressure doesn't rise with age. We already have some evidence, even in rural Ghana, that there is this effect of development. Blood pressure goes up with age. And is definitely lower in rural areas as in semi-urban areas. And that's the effect of urbanization, of changing an environment. If you migrate from rural to urban areas, your blood pressure goes up, you gain weight, and you gain all the risk factors for chronic disease. Therefore, the call for the projections is not surprising. When we look at the way they were treated and controlled, that was not surprising. Um, On the left hand side we have the level of detection. Those are the proportion of people who knew they had hypertension out of the hypertensis. One in three and only one in ten in rural areas. Um, When you look at the level of treatment and control, in particular on the right hand side, the control was non-existent. Even those who had been detected hypertensives, had been given tablets, the blood pressure was not controlled because they were not taking tablets. too expensive. They would take one week's supply from the hospital. They were left to pay for the rest. They wouldn't take them. So even if detected hypertension is not managed at the moment in those areas, so the risk is high. Is salt part of their culture? Yes. This is common uh, picture in many West African countries. This is salted fish the tilapias, um, and we'll see, we needed to assess how much salt and where they were getting the salt from if we wanted them to ask them to reduce it. So we had no survey on nutritional source. So we did our very focused survey on salt, nutritional survey, to find out where it was coming from, how common it was. And a few things came out. One is that the COBE, the, the, the tilapia, was more commonly used in rural areas than urban areas. And that is not surprising, because salted fish keeps. There was no refrigeration due to lack of electricity. They had no generators most of the time. So salted fish kept, even for days. So they were having salted fish. The salted beef was more common in urban areas, far more expensive than salted beef. So in terms of meat, there was quite a difference. And then we have all added salt to the cooking, and about half of them added salt to their table. So one thing was important, unlike the Western world, some, the majority of salt was added to food by the user. Unlike the Western world where most of our salt is put by the industry through the processing of food. Our study, the pilot study showed that if we were able to reduce salt in their diet and we could measure sodium excretion as in the bottom line, we would reduce blood pressure. So we went into a randomized trial And I will spare you the result of a randomized trial that showed, confirmed this data. Up to six months, we managed to reduce the salt intake to about 20% um, and reduce blood pressure of two over one millimeter of mercury in the whole population. Clinically, not a huge thing, but imagine across the whole population, that would predict very large changes in the incidence of strokes, renal failure, and other vascular diseases. Why is it important in Africa? Two more slides. Well, in England and Wales, we know that if we take stroke, the proportion of the risk of stroke attributable to high blood pressure is about 40% because there are other risk factors for stroke that contribute, the most important being cigarette smoking and a few other ones, atrial fibrillation and other things. Now, in the areas we worked in, smoking rates were limited if not absent at the time. May not be the same in South Africa, of course, in our area. So the attributable risk to blood pressure, of course, in stroke is much greater. For the same fall in blood pressure, we could yield more savings of strokes in those settings of Africa because obviously hypertension is driving more directly stroke rates when there's, there are no competing causes of stroke like smoking. So the strategies for hypertension control. Let me see if I. I want you to take away this message, there are two ways of a strategy for reducing um, hypertension rates and controlling. The one we use in the developed countries, we have screening programmes in place, we have drug therapy, the salt intake is high but can be reduced, but we need to go through the industry and some sort of negotiation of processing and reformulation of food. very difficult, we're going ahead with that in many countries. And the high-risk strategy is, is effective and is used. We dispense drugs, we invest time in screening. However, in developing countries, we have poor healthcare provisions, provisions. So we have to wait for development of those. They are half as unreliable as I showed you, at least in Ghana, there's little management. Now, salt intake is also mainly made of added salt to food. And it's not unique to Ashanti. It could be common to many areas. We know we've seen in some parts of South Africa it's the same. So I think health promotion, the traditional health promotion, can still work in the areas of salt intake. But You need to create awareness and have outreach, as this study, the community-based studies has showed, could be of use. Thanks. Thank